Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Before we begin our lesson this morning, and before we pray, I'd like to put in another plug for, can't say P too loud with this microphone. <laughs> I'd like to put in another plug for the baptism this afternoon. It's going to be at Sea Cliff Beach. It's going to be food, fun, fellowship, and worship of God. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus about baptism. I want to share those with you now. In Matthew 28, after the resurrection, when Jesus appeared one of the many times during the 40 days after the resurrection, it says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. The Bible says amen there, and we should too. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you that you are with us every time we come together. You have told us that where two or three are gathered in your name, that you are in our midst. And we welcome you here this morning, Lord Jesus. We thank you for being with us today. And we pray that you would attend the message and help us to say those things that everyone needs to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to give you a quick report on David. I see him or talk to him every day. He is doing much better. And he said, would you please pass along some things, Dad, when you speak to the people from me? I said, okay. He said, please thank them for all their prayers, for all their visits, for all their kindnesses, for letters and cards and everything else, and for a lot of nice food. And by the way, he's eating and his digestive system is working, and he's feeling better all the time. He probably, he might have overdone it a little bit yesterday. He walked a half a mile. I think he sat down for a while after he got through. But he is feeling better. He still has some drains in his side from the fluid that evidently comes from the infection that he had while he was in the hospital. And he still has nurses that see him every day at home. But he is getting stronger, and he does believe God is healing him. So please continue to pray. And I've asked everyone I've talked to, Please pray for David until you see him standing in this pulpit. And then you don't stop then. <laughs> Philippians chapter 4. Let's read the text. I'll read it and you follow, please. Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. 
or your version may say, through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you have shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know that also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I believe we have a slide which will give you the outline that I've come up with this morning. Uh, There are six items, and you see them there. First of all, standing fast in unity. Stand fast for the Lord, Paul is saying, but do it in unity. And then joy and peace through faith, that's verses 4 through 7. What to think and what to do, verses 8 and 9. The faithful church at Philippi, 10 through 18. God takes care of his family, verses 19 and 20. Paul says goodbye for now. All of our goodbyes are temporary if you think about it. Let's look at the verse 3 verses. Standing fast in unity. He says, My beloved and long for brethren, we've already read it. Stand fast in the Lord, beloved. The verse starts with the word therefore. The word therefore is a transition word referring to something that goes either before it or after it. You've heard David say more than once, uh, therefore, why is the therefore therefore? It's a transition word that refers to something else that appears probably before it. It happens to appear 416 times in the New Testament. It appears in every New Testament book, and Jesus himself used it many times. Let's take a look at a couple of times that Jesus used it. In Matthew 3, it said, he said, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then Matthew 19, Jesus said, So then they are no, are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It is used in every New Testament book, including the Revelation 
when Jesus said in Revelation 3:19, "As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten; therefore be zealous and repent." Therefore appears eight times in the book of Philippians, and our chapter today begins with it. It actually refers, as it opens the book of, of the fourth chapter, therefore refers to something that is profound up in chapter 3. So if you would, glance up at chapter 3 and look at verse 20. I think this is what Paul is referring to. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things, even to himself. In this passage, Paul is saying that our lives here are very temporary. This world is passing away. And there are two kinds of people in this world. Those whose lives are completely wrapped up in this world, they think about the things of this world and how they fit into this world. And then there are those who love the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him no matter what. And Paul is reminding the people at Philippi that we are only temporary citizens in this world and that our permanent citizenship, our eternal citizenship, is in heaven. We live in this world, but we are not of this world. I remember when I was in Bible college, my first year as a Christian, we used to sing a hymn that I'm sure some of you know. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Since the Philippians were citizens of heaven, and since their stay is short, Paul admonishes them to stand fast in the Lord. You know, Jesus even said that he had a short time. He said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. And James, the apostle, echoed the same thing when he said, Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You know, we make plans, but God is the planner. God is the one who determines the bounds of our habitation, where we will live and what we will do. Not only do we have a little, just a little bit of time to work, but only what we do for Christ will last into eternity. Everything else is going to stay behind. I've heard people say, I'm not a preacher or a missionary. What can I do for Christ? Well, Jesus said, you can let your light shine. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Men and women, if you work someplace, if you're in a working place, let your light shine at work. Let your light shine at home. To all the husbands here, you can love your wives. That's letting your light shine. And just in case, uh, brothers, you haven't learned this, I'd like to pass on a gem of wisdom to you. A happy wife is a happy life. <laughs> and saying it another way, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. <laughs> so husbands, love your wives. The Bible says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And you can raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You can raise them up to be citizens of God's kingdom. And you can let your neighbors see Christ in you. 
if we let our light shine the way Jesus admonished us to do, people will see it and they will, be, they will glorify our Father who is in heaven. I heard it said more than once that Christianity is more caught than taught. When we see people living a Christian life, if we have any desire at all to love God and to serve God, we are drawn to people who live for God. And then in the latter part of verse 1, he said, My beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown. When you break that verse apart, there are three personal things that Paul says about the Philippian believers. First of all, he calls them my beloved. Paul literally loved these people at Philippi dearly. I can imagine he thought of when he was first at Philippi. It was his custom to go to the synagogues in whatever town he landed in, whether it was in Asia or wherever it was. He would go to the synagogue and he would preach the gospel to those Jewish believers there. Well, in Philippi, there was no synagogue. So he, heard that he had heard that there were down by the riverside some women who were, would go there regularly and pray. So he went down there, and the Bible says that God opened the heart of one of those women, and she was born again, and she opened up her house to Paul and his companions. If you remember, shortly before he did that, or after he did that, he was thrown in jail for uh, casting a demon out of a woman who was a soothsayer. And the Bible says that they threw them in jail after they had beaten them. They put their feet in the stocks. And at midnight in the jail, they were singing praises to God in Philippi. And the jailer heard them. And then there was a great earthquake. And the jailer was afraid when all the doors were open because he was responsible for those prisoners. And he was going to kill himself. And Paul said, do yourself no harm. We are all here. And after that, he, the, God opened the doors. He went out of the jail he began to preach, and many people were saved in Philippi. And now he's writing to them, remembering how much he loves them. Paul had experienced God's great love, and now he reminds the Philippians just how much he loves them. You know, the Bible says we are to love others because he first loved us. How great is God's love to us? How great is it? Jeremiah the prophet put it this way. He said in chapter 31, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. In Ephesians 5, Paul spoke again, and he said, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. I had the privilege to attend Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa in the 70s when the Jesus people were singing this song. Love one another, for love is of God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then he says, my longed-for brethren. You know, this speaks of the joy of fellowship. When he wasn't with the Philippians, he longed to see them. He had a strong desire to see them and to be in their company. In other words, he missed them. He loved to have fellowship with God's people. Paul had learned that fellowship with God's people made him strong. You know, I'd like to say something to you personally, if I may. When I'm away from you, I miss you. I look forward to the days that we are together. On Sundays and Wednesdays and other times, I do miss you. 
And then he said, my joy and crown. Joy now and reward later. That's what the crown is all about. He had joy in his heart when they came to mind because he knew they were living for Christ. You see, they were not just his brothers and sisters for a time, but forever. They They were his brothers and sisters now and in eternity to come. And they, in eternity, they would be his reward. And then in the last part of verse 1, he says, So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. To the Corinthians church, he wrote in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, he said, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. We need Christians in this dark world today that will stand fast and be brave and be strong. In Ephesians, God has given us the ability to be strong. He says in chapter 6, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. No church, including us, of course, can do well at keeping this commandment if we don't stand fast in the Lord and put on the armor he has given us. You know, we have been put in this world for such a time as this. This world is not our home. We're going to another one, thank God. But... This is our time. This is our turn. Recently, you may remember a message by David that this is our turn. It's our turn to be strong. Then in verse 2, he has an admonition for two sisters in the fellowship. He said, I implore Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. These were evidently two strong Christian women who labored for God, who were godly women, but they had a disagreement of some kind. That caused a little bit of a division in the church, evidently, and Paul implores them to be of the same mind. Dr. McGee calls Euodia, O Lordy, and Sintage soon touchy. (laughs) We shouldn't be touchy, should we? So Paul implores these two sweet sisters to settle their differences. And this is really a strong exhortation by the Apostle, and it's a vital lesson for every one of us. There's power in unity. There's weakness and dissension and ungodliness in division. When we are weak, there are divisions. When we're strong, there's unity. In Psalm 133, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So when we are walking together in unity, God commands a blessing. And I'm sure that you can agree that we long for the blessings of God. There's nothing else like it. And Amos, the prophet, said, can two walk together unless they are agreed? To the Corinthians, Paul said, now I plead, and this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, 
but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And in Ephesians 4, he said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then in verse 3, I also urge you, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So women labored with Paul in the gospel. It's not revealed in the New Testament exactly what they did, how they worked with Paul. I'd like to quote our beloved pastor Chuck Smith, who said to a pastor's conference not too long ago in the connection with women serving in the gospel, he said... (coughs) Excuse me. This is a direct quote. He said, Some pastors believe the only thing women can do is wash dishes. Evidently, these women did much more than that, so much so that Paul commends them. He says, We have mature women who labor with me in the gospel, and he thanked God for them. And I'd like to say another thing personal. We have mature women in our fellowship here sitting amongst you right now who labor in prayer and in good works of all kinds. They labor in the children's ministry. They work in the prayer ministry. There were women praying just this morning for this meeting this morning. There are women who work in the helping hands ministry. There are mothers here who speak into the lives of their children, their grandchildren, and they are an example to the younger women of our fellowship. And I think I can say with all of the pastors, including David, What a blessing you are to us. We appreciate how much the women who are laboring with us in the gospel. So thank you very much and don't stop. And then in verses 4 through 7, we see joy and peace through faith. Verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Isn't it interesting that in this letter, Paul admonishes the people to rejoice twice in one God-breathed sentence? He said, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say rejoice. So, brothers and sisters, rejoice. We are admonished to rejoice. You may say, I don't always feel like rejoicing. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God knows that? God, who knows that, encourages us to rejoice always, and he will help us to do so. We read a moment ago a passage that says he gives us a peace that passes understanding. In other words, you can't quite understand it, but you have it because God gave it to you. He's telling us to rejoice, and I'm sure he will help us to do so. Try it. God says you'll like it. He also admonishes us to be gentle in verse 5. When you think about gentleness, what is gentleness? Gentleness is kindness under control, under a spirit-filled person's control. Be kind. To the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, Paul said, I 
plead with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Can you think of anybody in your mind who was evidently more gentle than Jesus Christ himself? Think about the woman at the well. The woman who had had five husbands, and she was now living with a man who was not her husband. Now, as a preacher, he could have rebuked her strongly, couldn't he? But he said, if, if you knew the water that I was going to give you, you would ask of him, and he would give you water that everlasting life. And she says, where will you get this water? We come here to draw. Is it, do you come here to draw? He says, I have water to drink that you don't know about. And later he said to the apostles, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So he was very kind to her. And she ran into, because he was so kind to her and didn't condemn her for his, her sins, he knew her sins well because he told her her sins. But he was very kind to her, and his kindness caused her to run into the town and said, Go, come see a man that told me all the things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? Jesus said, When they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you shall speak. So in verse 6, it says, Don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious. Be anxious for nothing. But with prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And Jesus, I'll repeat this, said when they deliver you up, don't worry about what you're going to say, for it will be given to you in that hour. And then he said in Matthew 6, don't worry. He said, therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. If you will make up your mind with God's help to be a Christian who doesn't worry, what a witness it will be to the people you know. Because we worry a lot. And Christians worry a lot. And God is admonishing us to stop it. Stop worrying. After all, who is our Savior? Who died for our sins? Who's taking us to heaven? Who's giving us an eternal home? Who loves us with an everlasting love that will never stop? Who gives us everything we need? Who loves us and died for us and speaks to us every day? And is with us this morning because he said he would be. So he says, don't worry. And then in verse 7, he talks about peace. He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You know, if we do what God says, peace will come in our hearts, even though we don't understand it. The peace that God gives is not necessarily understandable, but it is experienced. In Isaiah 26, Isaiah said, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So keep your mind on the Lord Jesus, and you'll have the peace he talked about. And just in case we forget, one of the titles of Jesus, he is the Prince of Peace. He says, so my peace I give to you. And then verses 8 and 9, it tells us what to think and what to do. What should we think about? Well, verse 8 says, whatsoever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, 
whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, any praise, anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. You know, we think about the things that we feed on. If we feed on good things, we think about good things. And God is ready to help us with our thought life. If I were to ask how many of you, I won't ask for a raise of hands because I think I'd see everybody's hand go up. But if, God, if, if you were to say that you have problems from time to time with your thought life, you probably would raise your hand. But God will help you even with your thought life. My son yesterday it was in Hawaii at a men's prayer breakfast and one of the men stood up and said, uh, you know, we really should confess our faults one to the other. And uh, because God told us to do that. He told us to confess our faults. And one, another brother stood up and said, well, I agree with that because the Bible says it. How could I disagree? But be careful that you don't confess your faults to somebody who's a gossip. Don't do that. And then this other brother stood up and said, that reminds me of a story. And he told this story. He said there were three pastors who were in prayer together. And they said, you know, we need to confess our faults one to the other. And so they began to do that. And the first pastor said, well, I have to admit that sometimes I look at some of the sisters a little too much. And I need help to turn away, turn my eyes away. So that's my confession. Then the other pastor said, well, I hate to confess this, but I've actually dipped into the till at our church. And please ask God to forgive me and to help me never to do that again. And then the third pastor said, well, my problem is I like to gossip. And he said, and I hardly wait to get out of this room. <laughs> so God will help us with our thought life. And you know, it's true. We have a rule in the, when we meet as pastors in this church. And we need to remind ourselves of this from time to time. Some of the new pastors, I don't know if we've stated it some, since some of the new pastors have come in, but we said when we discuss, we discuss things here uh, in, as we meet and pray for the people in this church, some of those things are sensitive and probably should not be shared with other people. So we've made a, an agreement that we won't even share these things with our wives. Not that we believe our wives are gossips, but why tempt them to do it? And I, I'm really glad that we have preachers in this body like that. So what should we should think about the things that are true, the things that are lovely, the things that are good. And God will help us with our, our thought life. I'd like to give you this one last verse about our thought life. In Galatians 6, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. He who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So if we think about good things, we will walk in the things that are right. And God will help every willing heart to sow in the, to the Spirit instead of the flesh. If you read the Bible and pray, your thought life is going to get better. You know, it's amazing when you neglect the scriptures, how your life begins to change. 
and does not change for the better. Every time, a, particularly a young man who has a problem with something, comes and asks for prayer, I ask him, or it could be a woman, I say, hey, do you read the Bible every day? Are you regular in church? Do you have fellowship with God's people? How much time do you spend in prayer? You know, the Bible says a bad company corrupts good morals. I remember one time, and I see a lot of the Teen Challenge brothers here. It's always good to see you guys. Anyway, I remember one time uh, at Teen Challenge, a guy walked up to me, and he was very sad that he had fallen off the wagon. And he said, you know, I'm really, I feel very badly about it, and I need prayer to strengthen me so I won't do that again. I'm here for that reason. And so I asked him a simple question. I said, well, this last time that you fell off the wagon, what happened? He said, well, I asked permission to go to the bank because they stay there at the facility most of the time. He went to the bank, and across the street was a bar. And this old friend of his said, hey, how are you doing? And he motioned me to come over and cross the street. He said, I made the mistake of crossing the street. What should he have done? He should have run the other way. You know, the Bible says flee fornication. We could learn something from our brother who was, whose wife wanted him to have relations with her. And the Bible says that when she grabbed him by the coat, he fled, left his coat there and fled. And then in verse 9, he said, These things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Isn't it something that the Apostle Paul could say, the things that you see me do, you do those things. I pray that my life could come to the place where I could say the very same thing to anybody who needs help. And may God help each one of us live up to the things that we have received and heard and seen and know from the scriptures. Here's a question I'd like for you to think about, to ponder. What kind of disciples would every one of us be if we just lived up to the things we already know? I challenge myself. I challenge you. Ask God to help you live up to the things you have learned already. And then in verses 10 through 18, Paul talks about the faithful church at Philippi. He commends them. I hope you don't mind if I read these verses again. We've already read them once, but it helps to get them down into our hearts. He said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, verse 10, but now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Then he goes on in that section and talks about how grateful he was for them giving to him when he was in need. And in verse 17, he said, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Isn't that an interesting statement? Paul just isn't thankful for what they gave him to help him in his living, to help him in the needs that he had. But he also thanked God that God was going to put that into their account when they got to heaven. Do you realize that it seems almost impossible that God is going to reward us for the good things that we have done? Because we're not very good a great deal of the time, if you know what I'm saying. But Paul wanted to remind them that everything they do for Christ will not be forgotten. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, if you give a, just a cup of cold water to a, one of my disciples, it will not be forgotten. 
he will, he will not lose his reward. Paul was content no matter what his current circumstances were. He said, I have found in all things, whether I'm hungry or whether I have plenty, to be content. Remember this, everybody, as he says to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. One day the books will be open and we'll be rewarded according to our works. Giving is one of those works. And that's exactly what Paul meant in verse 17. You know, pastors hesitate talking about tithes and offerings. Because if you don't do it right, you'll offend people. But God wants us to do it and do it right. I don't want you to miss the blessing that comes from giving. So I'm going to say a little bit of something to you about it. You just, you cannot outgive God. You can't do it. It's impossible. So I would encourage you, if you're not a faithful giver to the work of God, to ask God to help you begin to do that. Because you're missing a blessing if you don't do it. And it's really in obedience to our Savior if you think about it. We're going to stand before Jesus someday. And we're going to give account for everything that we have done in this body. Now, he isn't telling us to give or he's going to hit us, in the, hit us with a whip in the back. He wants to bless us if we'll do it. And so I'd like to just remind you of that. And then finally in uh, verses 19, not finally, in verses 19 and 20, uh, this passage tells us that God takes care of his family. He says in 19, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. God will supply our need. I wonder if you've ever heard of a person by the name of George Mueller. George Mueller was a a pastor and a missionary in England from about 1836 until the end of the century. He was a man who was born in Prussia but felt led to go to England and to go into a discipleship school where he could learn to be a missionary and to be a godly man. And one of the things of that school that was very practical was for the men who were studying there to really trust God for their daily needs, to truly trust him. And they taught him, don't ask. He's already told you he would provide for you. It's okay to ask for God to your day. But this school said, just try it. Try even not asking. You've already asked. Try not asking. And watch him supply. Well, one day, George was out uh, witnessing to people. and He was on the cobblestone streets of London. And he had been praying about his daily needs. He, he hadn't eaten that day. And so far, there was no, he had no money to buy any food. And all of a sudden, he saw a bright, shiny coin among those cobblestones. And he thought, there's God's provision because it was enough. I can't remember what the coin was, but it was enough to feed him for two or three days. And then all of a sudden, along came this brother who was always asking to give him some money. He recognized him, and it was a guy asking for something. And George Mueller quickly put his foot over the coin. And uh, the man came up, and sure enough, he said, hey, Brother George, you have something. I need some help, brother. And God spoke to his heart, and he remembered the words of Jesus. If someone asks you for something, give it to him. So he said, Lord, this is the provision you've given me for food. I'm hungry. He said, I said, give it to him. So George reached down and took the coin and handed it to this, this brother. 
Well, he made his way back. He said, well, I guess I can fast. He made his way back to the quarters where they lived and were taught. And there was a note from his mother and from some friends of his mother in Prussia who had written to him. And as he opened up this letter and this note, enough money fell out for about a week's worth of groceries. And he said, oh, God, forgive me for my lack of faith. So verse 19 says, my God will supply all your needs. Well, let me read you something about George Mueller. I got this, by the way, believe it or not, off of Wikipedia. (laughs) The work of George Mueller and his wife with orphans began in 1836 with the preparation of their own home in Bristol for the accommodation of 30 girls. Soon after, three more houses were furnished, growing the total of children that he cared for to 130. In 1845, as growth continued, Mueller decided that a separate building designed to house, three, house 300 children was necessary. And in 1849, at Ashley Down in Bristol, that home was opened. By 1870, more than 2,000 children were being accommodated in five different homes, beautiful brick houses. Through all of this, Mueller never made one request of anybody or any church for financial support. Nor did he go into debt, even though the five homes cost over 100,000 pounds to build. Can you imagine in 1845 or 1849 how much that was? But God gave him every penny to build those homes. Many times he received unsolicited food donations only hours before they were needed to feed the children. I remember reading his biography years ago, and I remember this reminded me of one paragraph in that book. Can you imagine 2,000 children sitting at tables in five different homes, and they didn't have enough food in the kitchen to feed those 2,000 children? So he said, he said, tell the children to go sit at the tables. And tell them to pray. So they all sat there and they prayed. It was I don't think it was a long time. It probably wasn't a short time either. But after they'd been praying for a while, they heard the clatter of horses and wagons. And he said, children, go to the front door. They went to the door. And out there were five or six wagons full of provisions for those children. Every morning after breakfast, there was a time of Bible reading and prayer, and every child was given a Bible upon leaving the orphanage. The children were dressed well and educated. Mueller even employed a school inspector to maintain high standards. In fact, many claimed that nearby factories and mines were unable to obtain enough workers because of his efforts in securing apprenticeships, professional training, and domestic positions for the children old enough to leave the orphanage. He got jobs for so many of those children that it was hard for anybody else in town to get a job. In 1871, an article in the London Times said that since 1836, 23,000 children had been educated in the schools, and very many thousands had been educated in other schools at the expense of the orphanage. The article also states that since its origin, 64,000 Bibles, 85,000 New Testaments, and 29 million religious books have been issued and distributed. Other expenses included the support of 150 missionaries. 
And he never asked a person for a dime. He only prayed to God. Verse 19, Paul said, God shall supply all of your riches, all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And then we end the the lesson today with verses 21 through 23. Paul says goodbye for now. In other words, temporarily he says goodbye. Please look at verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It's interesting. He said, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Who is a saint? Amen. He even said, all the saints greet you, especially those who are of Caesar's household. You think about this. Paul was, when he wrote this, he was in prison in Rome. And yet, somehow, the gospel had gotten to Caesar's house. And a number of people, evidently, were born again, living in Caesar's house. And they they had learned about the people of Philippi from Paul. And now they are sending their greetings to these saints in Philippi from the saints in Rome. Can you imagine If you are a Christian this morning, and had you been in the Philippian church, this greeting would include you. Saints are living believers in Jesus Christ. There is no committee, no group of men or women who meet and decide who the saints are, usually long after their death. The saints, Paul greets, are living, breathing believers in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you have not yet become a saint, you can take care of that this morning. I'm going to ask you if you have a Bible, you should have one. Please turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. Look at verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all that call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray if anyone is here now and has not yet received Christ as personal Savior, I pray, O God, that you would draw them by your Holy Spirit And help them to believe in Jesus and to call upon him just now. And you can repeat this prayer after me. Heavenly Father, 
I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose again from the dead. And I believe he's coming back from heaven someday. And I call upon you now to save me, just as you've said in this passage in Romans, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you meant that and you prayed that prayer, I can tell you on the authority of the word of God that you have been born again. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But once you know the Lord, you see the kingdom of God. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a song of praise to God. He's certainly worthy of our praise this morning.